Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com i'm mick garris and this is postmortem let's talk about hallowed ground no not churches and graveyards but cinematic hallowed ground those sacrosanct classic films that should not be touched tampered with sequelized or otherwise disrespected I have set foot on such grounds on more than one occasion and have received plaudits and brickbats for daring to do so. In 1997, after the success of the miniseries of The Stand, ABC offered Stephen King the opportunity to adapt whatever he wanted from his works to the screen, and he chose The Shining without a second thought. People gasped in horror that he would dare consider remaking a film that had been turned into an iconic classic by Stanley Kubrick. I was fortunate enough to be along for that ride as the stand's success led King to invite me on that next journey. And who could turn down the opportunity to direct a well-budgeted version of my favorite King novel with a script by King himself? It was well known that King was not a fan of the Kubrick film, that it disregarded major elements of the novel that were extremely personal to King. None of us involved thought for a moment that we were remaking the Kubrick film. We were adapting the novel as if for the first time. Despite its success and great reviews, Kubrick fans hated the miniseries just because it dared to tread the ground that Stanley had made his. Warner Brothers paid Kubrick a million and a half dollars for the rights to make the miniseries, and it was a huge success for them in all ways. But you can't believe some of the hateful emails I got at the time for daring to go where Kubrick had gone before. To this day, this is some of the work I'm most proud of. But this wasn't my first time around. In 1990, I was offered the opportunity to direct Psycho 4, The Beginning, for Universal and Showtime. Here, I'll claim naivete. We figured that we were 30 years after the original, and the first sequel had been a few years before, fairly well received. There'd been a second sequel that received neither box office success nor good reviews, and we thought that distance could only benefit us. And our script was by Joseph Stefano, who'd written the original 1960 film script. Our producer had worked as Hitchcock's assistant director on the original Psycho and on many, many other of his films and television productions. And of course, Anthony Perkins starred as Norman Bates. But we were walking on sacred ground, doing a sequel-prequel to cinema god Alfred Hitchcock's most successful and iconic film. And though, again, I'm very proud of the film, 
and the letter from Steven Spielberg singing its praises graces my office wall. It is seen as many as a denigration to the name of Hitchcock, when actually it was done with the most respect possible to offer. So where do you draw the line? Is it respectful or abusive to do modern work from previously mastered literary material? It's particularly germane to this show, as our guest is Henry Thomas, who played young Norman Bates in Psycho 4, and is currently starring in Mike Flanagan's fantastic Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House, based on Shirley Jackson's classic novel. The book had been turned into a masterpiece of ghost cinema by Robert Wise in 1963, and a less-than-memorable remake in 1999 by Jan de But Flanagan's series is a wonder, and makes it completely fresh and new. So we'll talk about psychos and hauntings and much, much more when we come back. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. The first time I ever saw you, I think it was your first film, was in Raggedy Man. And how old were you then? That w- was that your first movie? That was my first movie. That was 1980. Right. Uh, 1980, 1981, and I was eight, and I turned nine while we were shooting. And then you did a TV movie after that, and then along comes E.T. Um, yes. So that, you were already a working actor at eight years old, and suddenly you're in the biggest movie in history. Um, what was that experience like? Well, it was very strange because uh, it had been a whirlwind year. You know, I had basically gotten my first job uh, and my parents weren't involved in the industry at all. Uh, Didn't know much about it. And you were living in Texas at the time? I was living in in, uh, South Texas, sort of outside of San Antonio, uh, in a very rural kind of pastoral community. And uh, my only exposure to the acting world had come through my music teacher, who was the musical director of the local theater chapter. Oh, okay. She had had cast me in a few plays. Uh, They would do these educational plays at museums around San Antonio, so we'd go and... And most of them had to do with music. So it was like musical theater. Um, You're a musician as well. You play guitar and bagpipes and what else? Yeah. Yeah. A a sundry of useless instruments. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. You're not the lead bagpipe player in a band? Yeah. Well, I was. (laughs) Yeah. He wanted me to play the trumpet. So he was giving me trumpet lessons and... Uh, from the time I was about three, which was horrible for me. Like, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I I wanted to spend time with my dad, but, you know, he would get really frustrated with my lack of ability. At three. So, at three, yeah. <laughs> uh, a very patient man, but not when it came to music. So uh, I was put in piano lessons 
And my piano t- teacher, Mrs. Smiley, was the uh, musical director of a local theater group. And she put me in some plays. And they were educational plays that were being done in, in museums around San Antonio, Texas, and, you know, in the, in the mid-70s. And uh, these plays were usually themed uh, with some, something to do with the music industry. Like my first play was The History of Sheet Music. <laughs> and, <laughs> that sounds very <laughs> dramatically exciting. Yeah, I was the... I was the 1920s newspaper boy that would come out <laughs> between the first act and the second act and sing uh, extra, extra, read all about it, songs for sale. And that's it. And so that was my first part. And it scared the hell out of me to be on stage in front of an audience. But I loved it because I was sitting in the wings and I could watch all the other actors do the play and then when my part was ready, I, I would come out, do it, and then go back and sit on a little stool in the wings again. And, you know, the the play was probably like 45 minutes long tops. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. And, and that sort of instilled a desire in me to pursue acting to whatever degree I could. Uh, so you came from an artistic family. Your father was your father a professional trumpet player, a horn player, or was it a side thing, a hobby? Uh, he he wanted to be a professional player, but you know it wasn't his only gig. He had a job, um, but he had he had studied music. He had gone to college, and he had uh, he had a degree in in music. Um, but he was working a job, uh, as a hydraulics mechanic, uh, for this government contracting, uh, air, uh, you know, airway company, uh, mm-hmm. in Antonio. So you were, you were drawn both to the musical world and the, uh, performing world, but not performing so much in front of an audience. I mean, the, we've worked together a few times and you seem to be a very kind of reserved and shy person until you meet Matt Frewer. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll get to that later. (laughs) But um, so the choice to go into entertainment, especially live entertainment in front of an audience or in front of a camera um, seems like an unlikely one for a person of, of your perceived personality. Yes, and I think it was. I think that was uh, my biggest hang-up and probably still is my biggest hang-up uh, is kind of getting over that uh, performance anxiety of, of, of performing in front of people. And I, I don't – it doesn't affect me the same way that it did in the early days. Like I'm a little bit past it now. But. A little experienced at this point. <laughs> e- yes, <laughs> just uh, just a little. But I still get I still get nervous. You know, I realized a couple of years ago that my stage fright manifests itself after they say cut. So after uh-huh. after it's cut and printed, and we're done with the setup, then. I notice immediately that my palms 
are like, you know, dripping with sweat and uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, nervously shaking and uh, feel a bit queasy. Wow. So, so that, that's my stage fright now. Better it, it, after the fact than during. Yeah, it's, it's like reverse stage fright. Well, we started talking about the effect that E.T. had on you. Let's, let's get back into that because this is 1982. You're, what, 10 years old, 9 years old? Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm 10 years old. A um, Texas boy. I'm from Texas. I'm, I still, I've only been out of the state once, and that's to go to California uh, for E.T., so I go and make ET, and I still don't have uh, representation. Oh wow! Uh, because after I did Raggedy Man, Jack Fisk, uh, who directed the film and is also married to Sissy Spacek, Jack and Sissy, uh, they kind of took me under their wing and tried to get me set up uh, with an agent and tried to, you know, they got me into the Screen Actors Guild and, and, you know, help my mom uh, out, you know, with the, the basics of, you know, this is what a contract looks like. And, you know, this is fair, this is not fair. Um, So just as I kind of got my feet wet in the first couple of months after Raggedy Man, uh, the regional casting agent in Texas brought me in for another part and that was uh, this NBC Peacock Theater uh, movie of the week, which was The Steeler and the Pittsburgh Kid. It was the famous Coca-Cola commercial with oh, yeah. Kid and Mean Joe Green that they decided to extrapolate into an hour-long program. <laughs> <laughs> and you were and, the kid. And I was the kid because the original kid was 14 at the time and he was too old mm-hmm. and uh, in the stages of, uh, in stages of, of uh, prepubescence. So <laughs> they, they, they put me in and, you know, that thing took about a week and a half or so to shoot. And by that time, Universal had brought me out to do post-production work for Raggedy Man. Mm-hmm. And Jack Fisk and Ed Warshika, who was the editor for Raggedy Man, were across the hall from uh, the Poltergeist editing bay. Mm-hmm. So they had some interaction with Steven Spielberg right. and they showed him a clip of my work in Raggedy Man. And he was looking for a kid for his new film. So... Universal piggybacked my ADR session on into a, a meeting with with Spielberg for for what turned out to be ET, what was known as a boy's life at that point. Right. Interestingly, um, as they were doing post on on uh, Poltergeist, Poltergeist and ET came out within a week of each other. One was June fourth, and one was June eleventh. So it had been pretty far along for for ET to not even have been cast yet. Yeah, uh, I remember when we did the press tour for E.T., when we did the junket in New York, uh, we all went, the cast of E.T. all went uh, to the premiere of Poltergeist. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, but when I first met Stephen, it was on the set of Poltergeist. 
and it was in the backyard uh, swimming pool. Oh, Joe the corpse. Williams tank with all of the bodies and the coffins and things popping up. Mm-hmm. That was the day uh, that I came in to, to read for ET. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so ET happened. You worked with Stephen, who was famously good with uh, kid actors. And what was your experience on that end? I mean, you'd worked with Jack Fisk, who Fisk, who I think that was his first movie he directed after having been a production designer on Carrie. We all have a Stephen King connection here too, all over yeah. the place. <laughs> um, but uh, but I imagine it was a very different experience with going in with Stephen. It was, and it was also a lead role in uh, Hollywood. In Hollywood, uh, for a. I mean, not a huge movie at the time. E.T., you know, had a, it had a modest budget, uh, but all eyes were on Steven Spielberg at the time because, yeah. you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, and Jaws and Close Encounters uh, had had been successes, but 1941 had failed. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a film that a lot of people I think were skeptical about because it's, you know, it was very secretive, but it was a kid's movie, you know, I think in the eyes of, of the studio. And originally people were thinking of it as a sequel to Close Encounters. And I, I worked in publicity on ET as well as on Poltergeist. So I remember a big board meeting with Stephen when he showed us the first 15 minutes he'd cut together of ET and um, he was saying, you know, we don't want to tell people this is a sequel to Close Encounters because sequels do half of the box office of the original. That's what it was in 1982 anyway. And I, I, I was fascinated by that because it's the reverse today. But there you were in the thick of your first Hollywood experience, a $10 million movie, but it exploded. Yes. Uh, and it was readily apparent after two weeks, uh, after two weeks of, of E.T. being in the theaters, it was readily apparent that it was a runaway success. And then all of the agents that had said, I can't represent you because you don't live in Hollywood, uh, they started calling us. Uh, and my phone kept ringing and ringing and ringing in, in Texas. And it was it was very strange because... You know, it was before that it, it it was only like relatives calling on Sunday, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, well, it must have been interesting because you were in a way uh, removed from because you didn't live in Los Angeles and the business was there and everybody could converge on you. Did You were at a little bit of a more comfortable distance. And I assume that your parents were were very happy about that. Yeah, they uh, they wanted to keep Hollywood uh, at you know at a ten ten foot poles length <laughs> away, uh, at least, and you know it, it was good and bad. I mean, to uh, on the positive side, it insulated me from a lot of things that uh, could have messed up my my career uh, and your childhood and my childhood, probably more importantly, my childhood, but uh, 
but at the same time, I think, you know, my, my mother erred on the side of caution in terms of some projects not getting through and, uh, you know, only allowing me certain things like, uh, to work. But I mean, look, I'm, I'm still here, Mick. Yeah, uh, no kidding. So, <laughs> but, and that's a rare, it, a rare circumstance for a child actor to be able to keep working all the way through into adulthood. And now you're having some of your best times and we'll, we'll get into the haunting of Hill house and the like, but it's an exciting time to be Henry Thomas, the grown up Henry it, Thomas. Ironically enough, it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was. Uh, so how did you personally feel at the time when this explosion was going on and you realize here's these dolls of you uh, and E.T. And, and all these things? You were suddenly part of this huge pop culture phenomenon. Yeah, it was uh, it was really cool for about two weeks. <laughs> and it where, lasted years where I thought. Wow, this is great, you know. Everybody loves everything hmm. and uh you know, I'm famous. <laughs> I'm a famous guy in a famous movie. And then you know, I couldn't go anywhere and people were stopping me in the street and hmm. um and as a as an 11-year-old when you can't go play t-ball or something with your t-ball team because there are people taking pictures of you you know in the dugout and you know it's it's things like that that um that kind of well it 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 caused me to want to not leave my house for about a year as a kid wow and i just had friends over and i wouldn't go anywhere in public so suddenly so, this world became something that was threatening to you rather than something that embraced you. Yeah, it, it did. And there was, uh, there was a lot of uh, strange occurrences happening in terms of uh, like, people would go to the public library and research old phone books with my parents' uh, names because my parents' names had, a, had appeared in print oh, and they would find our address and then they would show up at our house. And, and some of them were very kind and, and nice people, but, uh, you know, regardless, you don't necessarily want unsolicited strangers coming <laughs> to your house. Well, yeah. you were being stalked, basically. I was being stalked, but, you know, strange things like, uh, you know, people would drive up and take pictures of our house and uh, take pictures of themselves in front of our house. And our house wasn't uh, a very photogenic place, you know. <laughs> Just a modest home. My dad made 500 bucks a week uh, mm. and my mom stayed at home uh, and ran a goat dairy oh, and wow. various other, you know, agricultural uh, enterprises. And so I was, uh, we were out of our depth to say the least mm -hmm. and not prepared for it, uh, in any way. And so we got a little bit, it got a little bit heightened there in the, in the early days, uh, in the early eighties. 
How long do you think it took for you to to adapt to this and to be able to live a normal life as much of a normal life as a, as a star of the most popular movie in history could be? Well, you know, the funny thing is that uh, it it went away for a little while. You know, it, it wasn't such a big deal. It was always it was always on the radar and people would always know me as the guy from E.T. Right. Um, a blessing as, and a curse, you think? A blessing and a curse, yeah. Well, you know, it's okay. It's just, I think what happened was I realized that um, fame is fickle and the industry is very temporal and that uh, having ups and downs is quite normal and uh, expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's sort of an onus of, well, I mean, people always ask, well, when, when E.T. was such a big success, weren't you worried that your next film wouldn't be as such of a success? And I said, well, of course, but I knew nothing would ever be as successful as that. That was a sensation, but it's not as though I set a bar anywhere in my mind, um, that, my success depended upon uh, a box office success. So you seem to to have a, a good at eleven become quite philosophical and and accepting. But what point did your life settle down after this furor of ET? It settled down when, basically, when I was a teenager, when I had kind of grown out of being easily recognizable as the boy, as you know? Elliot, yeah. It's like Elliot and I weren't the same, uh, you know, physical people anymore. There, mm-hmm. there had been, uh, you know, there had been some uh, puberty had happened and, and time <laughs> yeah. happened. And, um, and you shot up. I met you at 18 in a restaurant yeah. in San Antonio. Hilton Green and I and George Zaloom uh, met with you about playing young Norman Bates in Psycho 4. And I had known you from your childhood roles more than your teenage years. And so I was quite startled to see this at least six foot tall young man walk in with broad shoulders like Tony Perkins in, in the role of Norman Bates and was blown away by your demeanor and, and just thought, we have found the perfect casting for young Norman Bates. We never talked to any other actors about it. Once you were recommended and we met you, it was, that decision was made for us. But I want to know what your thoughts were going in and the idea of, of playing a young Norman Bates. Well, I was very excited about it because I thought, hey, this is a serious role. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I, it would be, uh, it would be a real challenge. And, uh, you know, in, at that point in my life, I had just graduated high school, uh, that, that, you know, the, the beginning of that summer, um, I think I met you in San Antonio towards the end of that summer in mm-hmm. 1990. And I was, I had finally decided after 
when I was 15 and 16, I had kind of thought I'm not going to do films or acting anymore. I'm just going to really? go to school and, and I'm going to, you know, get a job. And so I had, I had thought this through and I had decided I was going to be a serious actor and I was going to move to New York. That was my plan. And do theater? And do theater. Interesting. And then uh, Psycho 4 came along and I said, wow, this is interesting. And I had known uh, George Zaloom uh, from, I guess, Cloak and Dagger, oh, 1984 right. or 85. And that was a remake uh, of The Window, right? That, yes. That, by Tom Holland. Yes. And, and so basically, uh, you know, it, 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 Psycho came to me at, at a point where I had decided that I wanted to be an actor. And that was the first time that I had, that I had said, I'm, I'm going to pursue acting since I was uh, a kid. And you were making a decision at 18 now, so you're a brand new adult and actually choosing the course of your own life then. Yeah, it was a, it was a seminal moment for me because um, I think I had realized that I would never fit it back in and be a normal kid. Uh, that, that used to be a big priority. I would go and do a film, and then I would come back to school, and I would try to fit in and be... Um, like the other kids, you know, right. in, do the same things and, and um, talking about the same things. And, and, and it just wasn't me. So, so it was hard for you to do that, to just be one of the group when you'd had this experience in a completely rarefied life. Yeah, it's strange. You know, when you work on a film as a child, you're oftentimes treated as one of the adult performers uh, is treated. Right. Or at least they don't speak down to you so much, right? They, mm -hmm. they treat you as one of their colleagues. And going from that environment and kind of having a little bit of respect in that environment for your ability goes a long way in, in building your confidence, it, at least it did for me as a, as a child, you know, I, I felt confident in my ability to be a, a technically proficient actor. You know, and you'd gotten, you'd gotten acknowledgement too from the public as well as the business. Yeah. I had had a little bit of a claim and, um, a little bit. <laughs> well, okay. So I was nominated for a Golden Globe and I was nominated for a BAFTA award, a British uh, Academy of Film and Television Arts award in, I guess, 1983. Um, mm -hmm. And I lost to Ben Kingsley for the BAFTA, <laughs> for Gandhi. So you were in competition with Gandhi for Best Actor. <laughs> I mean, how at, at, 10, at 10, 11 years old, this had to have been just a mind-spinning situation. Well, I remember, I remember going to the BAFTA Awards with my dad and my mom. And we went to the BAFTAs and we sat down at the table and Kathleen Kennedy, uh, you know, who was a producer on E.T., was right. there. And 
after introducing me to Sir Alec Guinness, and um, <laughs> she she turns to me and says, "You know, Henry, I just want you. I don't want you to be upset, uh, but you're probably not going to win this award." <laughs> What a wild night that had to be. I said, yeah, Kathy, it's okay. I, I figured I'm probably not going to win. <laughs> you were a pretty bright 11-year-old. <laughs> well, let's go back to Psycho. Um, I, I'm curious as to when you read the script. And here is like a very dark and serious part for someone who had played mostly lightness. And the idea of being portraying the roots of one of the world, the cinema world's most iconic murderers and bad guys. I just wondered what your reaction to that was and what your approach to that was. Well, when I read the script, I thought, this is a great role. This is a great role for me. And it's a great, uh, it's a great chance to do something a little bit darker, um, something that I'm not really known for um, at all, something that no one's ever seen me do before. And a grown-up so, movie, too, as well. And it was a grown-up grown movie, and, and it was in a... I mean, it's, it's a teenage role, but it, it is an adult role. Right. Uh, but, but I was just... I was kind of overwhelmed by the challenge of it. And I was nervous about it, and I thought that must be a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. So when I when I went in to meet with you and and Hilton Green and George, I thought I thought I got to do this. I've just got to do it. Um, so I was happy that you had me. Well, it was great, and you know we never read you or anything. We just offered you the part. You were the first actor we had any interest in, and it worked out great. So I'm I'm curious about your the first time you met Tony Perkins. I know we introduced you to him, but the per first private conversation you had with him, what was that like for you? Well, I had spent the entire uh, time in between getting the script and and going to the job. I had spent the entire time watching and rewatching the original uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, psycho film and studying Tony Perkins's performance and his body language. And um, that was my biggest research. But when I, when I showed up in Orlando and, and met Tony, you know, we, we were introduced and then we went into his dressing room and we discussed uh, all aspects of Norman Bates and, it was a very, uh, he was very, uh, he was very nice and he was very polite and he just laid it out for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I mostly went, mm-hmm, yes, <laughs> no, I, I don't believe so, sir. Yes, uh, agreed, uh, I, things like that, but he just kind of talked about Norman and what motivates Norman and things that Norman wouldn't do, uh, in certain situations. Like what? Um, like, 
I'm trying to remember specifics, but you know, Norman doesn't reveal Norman uh, to anyone else but Mother, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because we Otherwise, had some of these conversations as well, obviously, but I'm just curious to getting the input from from where you first started. Yeah, he he was uh, he was very adamant about. Um, you know, he was very adamant about letting uh, letting Norman be Norman, um, and I think he was worried about me kind of trying to take the role into um, maybe a darker vein than what he wanted. Mm -hmm. I think he wanted to show uh, he wanted Norman to have some innocence mm -hmm. uh, at that point. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that, and uh, of course. He had directed Psycho 3. He had played Norman Bates in three movies before this one. And he wanted to direct Psycho 4, and the studio didn't want him to. So it made for a little bit of an awkward situation when the director of Critters 2 was called in to, to do it instead of him. So. <laughs> wow. You did an admirable job. Oh, well, thanks. I, ha I mentioned in the introduction that Steven Spielberg who was my first boss as well and gave me a career, um, sent me a note about how much he loved the movie and you in it. I'll show it to you after we're done here. But uh, uh, it, was, it was really challenging. And yet Tony himself, when we showed it to him at Universal after it was done, could not have been happier with it, went on and on and on about it. But, but it was not an easy job for anybody and i think probably most challenging for you it was it was a challenge but i enjoyed the challenge and i was uh i i think it was important because i needed to be challenged uh at that point yeah yeah especially I mean, especially as an actor uh you know it it was it was important and i think it it shaped a lot of choices that that I made that film. Well, that's interesting. You know, it, it was also the first film that you made that was directed specifically at adults. This was not, kids were not encouraged to watch this movie. Right. And, uh, it, you know, we shot it in Orlando, but we shipped in a lot of the original props from the original movie, like Mother's Bed and all, um, just for the veracity of, of that linkage there. So between a script by Joe Stefano, having Tony there, having Hilton Green there. I mean, there was as much as we could possibly do to keep the respect for the original. Yeah, and uh, having Joe Stefano there uh, was great, I thought, because I love to talk to him about... Uh, I love to talk to him about the character, mm. um, and I love to talk to him about his days with Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah, that was fascinating stuff to to learn about that, to have Hilton there and to have Joe there and to have Tony. And Tony Perkins, of course, he'd worked with Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, William Wyler, oh. all of the greats of Hollywood. And <laughs> so Wyler, Hitchcock, Welles, and Garris. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all right. Fun you to be it. on that team. <laughs> You're in the park. <laughs> yeah. Well, the next time you and I worked together was on, was, uh, was Masters of Horror before or after? Yeah, it was before Desperation, right? 
They were right around uh, the same time, almost back to back. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, I feel like it was desperation first. Yeah, yeah. But, Where I asked you if you would play uh, Janet Lee, basically, <laughs> because yes. you know, here you're you're the one of the first listed stars in an ensemble cast, but you die 15 minutes into the movie. Yes. So it yeah. was very Hitchcockian. It was, it was a fun. Uh, it was a fun three days of seeing you, Mick. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was great. But you know, here this was another Stephen King thing. Now you're uh, doing Doctor Sleep right now with Mike Flanagan, and and we'll talk to, about that too. And Mike has a big Stephen King connection with Gerald's Game and Doctor Sleep and the like. Um, now you have a Stephen King connection here in addition to desperation. So it's like we're, we're veteran King, uh, players. Yeah. Uh, and I, had you read, I owe him a, I owe him a lunch. <laughs> At least. <laughs> had you read the book desperation before we did that? You know, I hadn't read desperation. Um, I had read, uh, Carrie and pet cemetery and the shining and, mm. um, but I hadn't really read a, a, and uh, Stand By Me. You know, that's one of my big regrets. I, I passed on Stand By Me. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. It, Which part? Um, I think it was Will Will Wheaton's role. Oh, the the leading role of the yeah. kids. Yeah. But uh, but at the time, you know, I was I felt that I was too young hmm. uh, when they approached me with it because most of the kids were meant to be around 13 or so and uh well that was 86 i, I think wasn't it uh, so when i got to it, when when it came to me there wasn't a script yet ah i and, see there was the body they, was the story and that's what you read yeah yeah and and my mom read it and said Oh, I think you ought to do this, Henry. It's a really great story. Really? Yeah, and I didn't listen to her, and I said, no, those kids are going to be too old, and I'll be the youngest kid in the cast, and mm -hmm. they'll cast me because they'll want me to be young and sympathetic, and it'll be uh, horrible to work on that set because all the other kids will be older than me, and they'll make fun of me. Oh. My mom my mom said, Oh, that's crazy. I think you should do it. And I, <laughs> I wouldn't do it. Yeah. It's, but, it's a great story and a great movie, but you know, you make your changes and you move forward instead of yeah, backward. Sure. But you know, the, that's one of my favorite, uh, Stephen King, uh, short stories for sure. Mm. Yeah, it was, it's, it's a powerful movie too. And, uh, and one of my favorites as well. Um, so back to desperation. Uh, yes. We were in the desert. We were in Tucson. And driving scenes are a pain in the ass. And most of what we did with you was driving scenes, you and Annabeth Gish. Uh, and then the Ron Perlman character of uh, Kali and Trajan. Um, so... Was it as annoying to you to be hooked up to a trailer and, and driven as it was to me? Oh, yeah. I hate process trailers. Oh, it's 
People don't understand that every shot when you're in a driving scene, there's a trailer, there's a camera that can't be moved. Uh, there are cameras put on, on window trays and, you know, one or two or three cameras at a time, but you just have to keep doing it over and over. It takes hours to set the cameras up. And so two thirds of what you did was driving stuff. Yes. Uh, and, and driving stuff, I think the challenge of driving stuff is also that you also, you're, you're removed in this separate uh, vehicle, kind of isolated with just a walkie-talkie to communicate <laughs> with the uh, powers that be. And so it, it literally feels like acting by remote, you know. Mm -hmm. You'll get the direction and then you'll feel kind of like, well, I don't know. Did they get it? I can't tell. Um, yeah, there's no immediate stuck. feedback other than, <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had a bump. We're going again. Right. Uh, those kind of things. But, but yeah, it's one of the joys of, of filmmaking. I saw these, uh, I saw this, this process that they're doing now which they call the rich man's process. <laughs> As opposed um, to poor man's where you're not even driving, you just do it in a stage. Yeah. So now like the rich man's process, that looks like, uh, it looks like the 1950s uh, blue screen sort of re rear projection uh, poor man's process. Right. But it's but it's green screen and it does all of the ritzy stuff. Oh, in fact, I think there's a lot of it in uh, Haunting of Hill House. Uh, yes, going over what looks like lights reflected on a window screen, and I thought I don't believe that's real. I have a feeling <laughs> that that's a post production process, but it looked beautiful. Yeah, um, I had some driving stuff in Haunting of Hill House, and we were on a process trailer for that, but you know, that was a very limited, small scene. I know that for some of those big scenes at night, there are like three or four pages between characters uh, of dialogue, you know, so, uh, but, but thankfully I wasn't in, the, <laughs> I wasn't in the truck. For that. Three or four pages. I think in desperation, we had 15 pages or about oh, at yeah. least 10 pages in, in the two days that we did uh, the My entire stuff. My entire time was spent, uh, I think we had two shots outside of the process trailer. For yeah, me. well, when when you get killed, we're right. in, the, in the sheriff's station and leading into that. But, um, but I also think that scene, as much as difficult as it was technically to shoot, is incredibly exciting. It's the opening of the movie, and it's like for 15 minutes, you think you're getting a different type of movie than it, what it turns into. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it works. And, uh, and it was, it was great, uh, you know, being in a, being stuck in a car with Annabeth Gish and Ron Perlman wasn't so bad. <laughs> Not so bad at all. It's great, you know, and, and when you meet an actor that you click with, or that you, you're able to communicate with, and, and is so reliable as, as with you, I've worked with you three times, and hopefully there will be more. Annabeth is in my new movie, Nightmare Cinema, and I love her to death. She's also in Bag of Bones, another Stephen King thing we did. Ron Perlman was in Sleepwalkers before that, another Stephen King thing that we did. And then in, yes. in Masters of Horror, he was in John Carpenter's second season episode. So, oh, that's right. <clears throat> lots of lots of linkage there. So it's great. 
Your experience in desperation was short, but it led right into, I think I was in post on desperation when I started pre-production on, on Masters of Horror. And so the experience with working with you playing Janet Lee <laughs> was, <laughs> was so much fun that you were the first guy I thought of for Chocolate, which was based on a short story that I'd written 20 years before. And yeah, which is which was uh, an amazing, uh, crazy story. Uh, <laughs> it's an incredibly the, bold performance that you gave that not many actors would have committed to the way you did, and it makes the movie. Well, I'm glad. Uh, you know, again, Mick Garris comes to me with challenges. <laughs> I can't resist. Do you want to describe that particular challenge? Well, uh, for those for those of you who haven't seen uh, Masters of Horror, the episode is called Chocolate, and i i play uh, I play a character that starts to almost like it's almost like remote viewing or something, where he he starts to he starts to feel uh, the the same sensations that this other person is feeling as she's feeling him. He starts to see through her eyes and, and feel her emotions and, and everything. And basically what it leads to is him having to seek out this woman and find her because, um, he's having this psychic connection with her. But part of this psychic connection is that while she's, uh, having sex, uh, he is experiencing her uh, orgasms and uh, everything. Uh, <laughs> yes, feeling her being penetrated and not in the way a male would be penetrated. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's um, it was it, it was it was tricky. Uh, it was tricky acting work, Mick. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> I tried to ease you through it <laughs> gently. <laughs> Well, you know, aside from like feeling ridiculous on set, uh, I was very happy with the performance, and I thought that uh, I thought that the piece itself was was really interesting. Well, I was really thrilled with it because it could easily have gone off the off the rails had it been in in the hands of somebody who just didn't get it or embrace it, because you have to commit. You know, this is something I'm going for this, or I'm a little too embarrassed to do this fully. And had that been the case, the the film would not have worked at all. But, I mean, that's why I love working with you, because you always bring something, your own commitment, but something special that's personally yours and not something from, that I would have in my mind, even though this was one that I wrote. Um, you know, I still welcomed the Henry Thomas input. And I love the actors who come in with their own ideas too. And this was one that had room for that. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, I, I greatly appreciate that. Uh, but I think most of it was, um, was a fear of complete failure that propelled me to excel. <laughs> <laughs> well, that worked, but what also worked is, 
Um, this is told in the first person, and there's narration directly into the camera, which we learn later on is, is uh, an investigating cop. But you experience her murdering this guy, taking a butcher knife, jamming it into him while he's atop her, and feeling the blood running down your arms. And the way you describe it is so emotionally jarring. And, you know, it's based on a, uh, on a dream that I had that I felt what it was like to murder somebody like that, but I did not commit the murder. And so that's that was the germ of that whole story. And when you're describing the heat of the blood running down your arms, you're so shaken by it that it's great because you, you experience her villainy from the outside and from the inside, but emotionally it's so disgusting to you. Yeah, uh well, it's interesting to me, the whole juxtaposition of, you know, experience, uh, fantasy, reality, what's real, what, you know, is, is something that is visceral, is that as real as experiencing it firsthand, or is a visceral experience uh, something that can be shared, uh, you know, almost with like the hive mind? Uh, right. Right. This is this is an interesting question. Well, let's talk a little about you know we talked about um, hallowed ground in cinema. You know, we went back in and did a prequel sequel to Psycho. Now Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House, it was made into a magnificent film in 1963 by Robert Wise, a less than magnificent movie in 1999, and now. Mike Flanagan, who has shown such a great flair, not only with Stephen King brand horror, but just horror and emotionally based horror, he's made this fantastic 10-episode miniseries, basically, of The Haunting of Hill House. And you're a part of that. Had you watched the original films before? Uh, Yes. I mean, the the Robert Wise movie uh, is classic. Uh, I, I saw... Of course, the 90s version, uh, when it came out and wasn't completely impressed, but, <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, it's interesting because what Mike has done with the series, our, our, our series is pretty far removed from the source material. Um, and yet it pays homage in a lot of very specific ways. Um, and, and Shirley Jackson's book was, uh, you know, but it is a a 2018 telling of a story that inspired it. Yes. And it pays homage to Shirley Jackson and, and to the Robert Wise film. Um, but it takes the source material and stands on its head a little bit in the sense that, you know, we're not watching um, a group of people in the house trying to determine, you know, with devices whether or not uh, there's paranormal activity. But, but I think what Mike did, which was very interesting, is he turned it into... Uh, a study about grief and loss uh, within this structure of of a haunted house. 
and a family. I mean, it's it's basically fam this family's chambers, very emotional. The original movie was unlike most genre films at the time in that it was very emotional and very human. And that's something that Stephen King's work has emphasized uh, in ways that had not been done before. And so what, what Flanagan has done in this 10-part story has put one family into two periods. It's two generations. And it goes back and forth. Sometimes you don't know where you are in time because those characters also shift in time. So uh, what is the shooting experience like that, kind of jumping from the 80s to now? Yeah, it was very uh, it was very challenging uh, to kind of treat, keep track of where your character was uh, in the story within the particular timeline, um, and it was challenging because uh, the you know the the two timelines were being shot concurrently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might come in on Tuesday for uh, episode three and be doing uh, episodes four and five and episode one on Thursday, <laughs> like all in the same day. Um, which, so it was scheduled like a big movie, a 10 hour movie. It was scheduled like a 10 hour movie. I mean, we were sh we would shoot blocks. So we would shoot like, you know. We're shooting right now episodes one through six or one mm -hmm. through five mm -hmm. in the first block. And then we went on holiday and came back uh, and second block was episode six through ten, you know. Um, but we were jumping around within those uh, those episodes constantly. So, so it was a bit of a challenge to keep track of, of where your character was. How would you describe your character of Hugh Crane uh, on this to someone who, who doesn't know anything about the haunting? Well, Hugh's probably the most grounded, pragmatic uh, person that comes to Hill House. He isn't a, a huge believer or, or very receptive to the idea of ghosts or... or haunted things. I mean, un until he's kind of stared down the, the, the face w w with it, then he accepts it. But before that, uh, you know, it's always some kind of structural excuse like, oh, the pipes are bad or uh, there must have been a storm or there's mold. Hmm. You know, there's always, a, you know, a rational, not yeah. My wife's not losing her mind. She's just tired. Right. It's been too much stress for her. Um, you know, but in a lot of ways, he's kind of, uh, he's like the last guy to clock it, uh, for sure. But that might also be his own private fear, you know. But I, I think the biggest thing for Hugh is that he's a guy that fixes things. Mm -hmm. And um, he's convinced that he can fix anything. Uh, until he can't. Until he can't. And then basically when we come back to your character in current time, 
it's Timothy Hutton who seems to have been pretty much destroyed by this experience. I mean, he's so fractured by what happens that I'm fascinated to see what the gap is between in the 30 years between. Yes. Well, um, in the sense of our story, uh, the subtext is that there was a big uh, tabloid trial, uh, you know, public, uh, a, a trial by media uh, where the family was just hounded and hounded and, and uh, you know, Hugh Crane loses all semblance of any kind of respect uh, in, in society. You know, he's known as a madman and crazy and a liar and uh, a possible murderer. Uh, so, you know, he, he, he's, he's devastated by that. But at the same time, he's just kind of staying the course because the most important thing to him is protecting his family from what what's left of his family from that house. Yeah, despite them being thrown apart by reasons we won't get into, uh, for those who have not seen the show. Um, are you a believer in paranormal events of this nature? I mean, I don't want to discount it because, like, I don't know, you know. I haven't... Uh, I haven't seen proof one way or the other, mm -hmm. you know. So you want to Casper, experience before you... Casper, yeah, Casper hasn't come to me and, <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and asked me to play uh, yet. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I think that there's a lot of things in science and nature that we don't understand yet. And it's easy to say, um, you know, ghosts don't exist, but... You know, if someone said, oh, well, this is a, you know, a neutrino shadow <laughs> uh, and they had proved it, you know, through several experiments, then we would all say, oh, yeah, well, they exist. Right. So I just uh, I like to keep an open mind uh, about such things because I would I would hate to cut myself out of a, a larger world. Hmm. Well put. Um in your adult life, a lot of your roles, like Psycho 4, like Chocolate, like Desperation, like The Haunting of Hill House, Dead Birds, some other things like that, are in the horror genre. Are you drawn to that particularly as a viewer? You know, it's funny because I don't think I ever really set out uh, to, to portray uh, characters in horror pieces it's always the characters that are interesting mm -hmm. um, and the stories are interesting. And I, I, I think what I'm more drawn to is I'm drawn to psychological terror mm -hmm. and psychological thrillers. Um, that's really interesting to me. Um, well, it's very character-based stuff, all the things we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's true. And, and you know, you do bring a unique personality and persona into the characters you play, which I think adds such another level to Hugh Crane or, or Norman Bates or whoever it is. And, and it's exciting to see what a really original actor brings to something like that for a filmmaker and for an audience. Oh, th thank you for saying that. Uh, well, it's true. I... I like 
I, I like human beings uh, in general. Uh, I think that we're very confusing and, and uh, it's not always what you see is what you get. And I enjoy, I enjoy playing that. I enjoy showing that um, as much as I can in any given uh, character. Well, uh, in The Haunting of Hill House, you play a parent and you are a parent. Do you, do you draw upon that? Do you think becoming a parent deepened or changed in any way your approach to your work? Absolutely, it did. Um, because I think uh, one of the one of the most humbling moments uh, you ever have is in a delivery room, hmm. you know, looking at this tiny person and you realize, wow, that was me and that was this person and that was everyone on this planet. Like we were all this once right. and what an amazing thing. Um, so having like the world crushing a feeling of being so insignificant and yet so important at the same time uh, all at once was really overwhelming. And I think anytime you have those moments as a human being, uh, it informs, it informs you. Uh, it, it definitely informs characters that I play. Um, yeah, I think, also having the interaction with uh, kids as a parent, uh, it it gives you it gives you a lot of artillery for or a lot of ammunition uh, to add things that that enrich the, the the character in the situation because I know you know a lot of scenes with parents and kids it seems like the the parents are completely tuned in to what the kids are saying and they're paying attention to them and watching them and and i know half the time as a parent like i'm trying to uh, you know fill out this paperwork or <laughs> i'm trying to wash the dishes or i'm trying to uh, get the pantry organized and uh, there's a lot of, uh, yeah. Okay, kid, go play, you know? <laughs> um, but you know, showing those things, I think it's, it's, it's just as important as, uh, as, as showing the, the high good parenting moments. Great. Um, just, we're about to wrap it up, but I'm talking to you now. You don't have any hair. And that's something I've never seen with you before. You are stepping back into the world of Stephen King. Right now, yeah. you're working with Mike Flanagan again in Atlanta on Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining. And of course, I got to do the miniseries version of The Shining. Yes, so. I know. That's why I, I thought you would find this interesting. <laughs> it's pretty great. So tell me what you are, what you are doing in The Shining. I mean, okay. the uh, Dr. Sleep. Okay, well, I can't tell you my character because okay. I'm not allowed to talk about it. Fair enough. But uh, I'm I'm playing a, a, a very bad dude. <laughs> and uh, 
I am, uh, I'm very excited about this. And when you see it, uh, you'll either think brilliant or you're going to laugh at me. <laughs> or maybe both. Who knows? Or maybe both. <laughs> well, I, I'm really happy to have been able to catch up with you and can't wait to see you the next time. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to join us for this. I think it's a really special episode and I appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Mick. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk to you. And thanks for uh, thinking of me over the years and, and employing me. <laughs> you kept my children in shoes. Well, thanks for being terrific and easy to work with and, and great to work with and being a friend. Thanks, Mick. All right. Take care. Take care. All right. So that wraps it up. But I just wanted to thank you personally. Uh, it just It's really great to see you doing so well, Henry. And Cynthia and I both get excited every time we see you. And we just finished oh, watching all 10 episodes and just, it was, it was really great. And please give Mike my love. And I love I that do. he and I both are in the uh, Henry Thomas Employment Services. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. You guys are neck and neck. <laughs> yeah, we're tied now. I'm, I'm, I'm racing to be the next one. So okay. if I ever work again. No. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I really appreciate it, and, and I hope you're having a great time there. And, and like I said, please give Mike my best. He's, he's a I great guy, and he, he did a great show with us as well. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. All right, Henry, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.